0: So hey, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to Acts chapter 13. Um, we're going to look at verses 4 through 12 today in, in this chapter. As we are continuing in the series Resurgence, and we're looking again at the book of Acts, and looking at what, what happened 2,000 years ago, and then asking what is the modern day reflection of that. So revisiting the past to take hold of the future. So as we walk through this series, um, one of the things that you've, we've seen uh, a number of times in the different passages is that um, the disciples, as they follow Jesus, come up against opposition. And to this point, primarily, not always, but primarily, that opposition has come from the Jews or the religious leaders, the establishment that doesn't believe in who Jesus is, and so they push back, and that creates this persecution, this opposition. Uh, in this passage that we're gonna look at today, the opposition comes from in a different form. It comes actually through um, what, the, what the passage actually describes a magician, somebody who used magic. Uh, to bring influence and power over other people. And so in this encounter, it's more of a a kind of an an evil versus truth kind of an encounter. But as we look at the passage today, what I I want us to do is that that we need to be aware that there are spiritual powers and spiritual forces going on around us that we don't necessarily physically see, but they carry influence in our lives. And the reason it's important for us to understand this is because many times when it comes to evil— we perceive evil as the very thing that comes in opposition to us and is obvious to us. It's like good and bad, black and white, so we, we see it light and dark. But most of the time, evil doesn't come in a form where it's recognizable. In fact, the evil that you and I need to be more concerned with is not the evil that comes in, in, in direct opposition, it's the evil that comes by subtle influence in our lives. Because that's the primary way that the enemy works. He influences things around us to get us to make decisions that we shouldn't make. Here's a perfect example. This is started from the beginning. In, in the Garden of Eden, when, when the serpent came to Eve to have this dialogue with her about the fruit that she wasn't supposed to eat, you notice if you've read that, that story, you, one thing you will not find is that the devil doesn't show up and, and come into the form of a serpent and says, ta-da, here I am. This is Satan. Here I am. I'm going to deceive you. I'm going to tell you a lie. You're going to believe it. He, he doesn't do that, does he? He starts a dialogue with her. He comes as a serpent. He doesn't even come as himself. And he asks her a question that tweaks the dialogue or the instruction that God has given. So she, he asks her this question. When she, you know, he, he, she responds and says, yeah, we're not supposed to eat, eat the fruit, his response to her is, what, did God really say? Start to question that. In fact, what's interesting is that he doesn't tell her the truth because he says to her, if you eat the fruit, this is the promise that the enemy makes. You will, your eyes will be open and you will be just like God. What's the truth of what happens when they eat their fruit? Sin enters the equation and everything unravels. That's what's going to happen. The enemy doesn't say that. Why? Because he's coming in the form of deception. He's coming in the form of influence. And obviously his conversation with Eve was convincing enough that even though she knew she wasn't supposed to take the fruit, she did. Which, by the way, guys... Adam's just as guilty as Eve, okay? We always blame, by the way, for we can tell in the passage, guess who's standing by idly while this is going on? Adam. Same thing. Adam was there. So the enemy starts working that way, and the enemy has, throughout human history, worked the same way. He works the same way today. So in this passage, I want us to look at some things that we're gonna highlight in just a moment, but let me, let me read through the passage in this encounter that Paul and Barnabas have with this, this magician that's trying to influence somebody else who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the magician, for this is, that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, listen to these words, pretty direct. You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, But before we jump into this, I want you to understand contextually what's going on here because sometimes we read a story and we, we have a different kind of framework that we look at things. So back in the first century when this encounter happens, and there's a similar encounter obviously uh, in another another point where someone is looking at spiritual power, is that we think of like magic and things like that, like not magic in terms of the forms of entertainment that we have in our culture, but magic in terms of dark magic and evil and all those kind of things, is this is bad and then there's, then there's then there's no such thing as good magic, it's just... God's power over here, their perception of this encounter wouldn't be that way. They would see all of this as magic. They would see the magic of Elimus compared to the magic of Paul and Barnabas, which is God's magic, and the reason that we will get to the end of this, the reason that the proconsul is captured by what's going on is he just witnessed magic that was more powerful than the man who was shaping his life. He saw a demonstration of God's power that was greater than the power that had been influencing him and trying to get him to turn from God. I want you guys to see that because that's important to understand is the way that God works in culture so many times is that it's not this obvious black and white. It's that God is using something that they would have understood but doing it in a way that's far more powerful. So in this passage, the the way that the enemy is influencing even this magician and trying to get a, a hold of Sergius Paulus is he's doing it in ways that are are deceptive by nature. And so what I want us to look at is, is the first three things, is what does evil look like in terms of when it's, when it's done in a way that wants us to, to be influenced in the wrong direction or make bad decisions, what does evil look like? Three things. Look at verse eight. The first thing that evil looks like is it looks like diversion. So in verse eight, it says, but Elymas, the, the magician, that's, well, of course, that's the meaning of his name, he opposed them and was seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. The word magician actually describes a person who does tricks or uses sleight of hand to divert somebody's attention away from the truth. Now, obviously, we know that magic, there's magicians in our culture that do this and just they do it for fun and entertainment. But in this situation, this this his name, his very identity, Elima says identity was to do things in such a way to divert somebody's attention from the truth. So that really that person would think that they saw the truth, but the truth wasn't what they saw they actually saw something that was wrong and evil and that's this this diversion tactic that the enemy uses all the time in our lives the enemy influences all the time to try to divert us because what if what if the truth the difference between the truth and evil is not 180 degrees it's not that truth is this way and evil is this way what if evil is literally just one degree off of truth See, because then we don't think, well, because we're waiting for, what, it's black and white, it's good or bad, I can, it's light or dark, you can see it, no, 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 no. The way the enemy works is just a slight diversion. And you think, well, if it's just one degree off, and if, if you know, that term degree is, you know, on a compass there's 360 degrees in a circle, and so if you're heading in a direction, you have a heading according to that. So if you're heading a certain direction, you're heading, what, zero, or your heading is 180, your heading is 90, whatever it is. But what if truth, the difference between truth and evil, is not zero to 180, it's zero to one, and say so your heading's supposed to be zero, but, but you're just off just by one degree. You're like, well, that's not that bad. I mean, you can kind of correct that. You're going you're gonna to get close. Well, let's just play this out. Let's do the math. Okay, walk with me this, okay? If you're off one degree and you just, just decided to travel one foot, you'd only be off 0.2 inches. Easy adjustment, right? Let's take that a little further. What if you're going to travel 100 yards? At the end of that 100 yards, if you were just off by one degree from where you wanted to go, you'd actually end up being 5.2 feet off course. Still not that much. You could take one big side step, and you'd be back on course. But what if you wanted to go a mile, and you were just slightly off course, just one degree off, you'd just divert it a little bit. After a mile, you'd be 92.2 feet off. That's more than just one giant step. Let's say, let's go bigger. Let's say you're traveling to San Francisco, um, excuse me, uh, from San Francisco to L.A. If you were one degree off, you would be... Six miles off course. That's pretty substantial. Let's go further. Traveling San Francisco to Washington, D.C., just one degree off, you'd end up 42.6 miles away, and you'd be on the other side of Baltimore. You wouldn't even come close to D.C. Let's go a a little bit further. What if you were using D.C. as a reference point? You wanted to fly all the way around the world and land, and again, again, the same place, but you were just one degree off when you left Washington, D.C.? The sad thing is that you would end up 435 miles away in Boston, by the time you got around the globe. Let's take it even broader. If you're going to travel to the moon and you were just one degree off, you're heading from the earth to the moon, you would end up 4,169 miles off course. You wouldn't even come close to the moon. Let's take it even bigger. If you're going to travel to the sun from the earth, if you're off by just one degree, you would miss the sun by 1.6 million miles. And then here how about this one. This, this is crazy. If you're going to travel to the nearest star from earth, to that star, and you were off just one degree, just distorted slightly, you would be off course by 441 billion miles. That's crazy. Just one degree. The enemy knows that. If I can just nudge them, if I can just influence them just one step to the side of where they're supposed to go, they'll never get to where they're going, but they'll be convinced they're not that far away. And that's why you and I have to understand the difference between truth and evil is very slight, and that's why the enemy works through diversion, just like he did in this particular passage. Elias is trying to divert the pro-council to his way. Second thing, look at verse 8. Evil looks like distortion. So in verse 8, it goes on to the same thing. Elias, he's, his name is Magician, but then it says he was seeking to do what? To turn the pro-council away from the faith. The word turn means to twist. So he's trying to twist and distort what the truth is. So it looks like the truth, but it's just slightly twisted. It's just slightly turned. And the way that works in our life is what happens is evil many times will use what appears to be right to do the wrong thing. It happens all the time. In fact, this is the way the enemy, the enemy always what the Bible says he masquerades as an angel of light. Why? Because he's trying to appear something not true. So he uses what is good for wrong purposes. So when Jesus was tempted by Satan, after Jesus had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he's tempted by Satan, and, and one of those temptations, G- he takes Jesus up, at least it gives him the vision of being up on top of the temple, and he tells Jesus, just throw yourself off the temple because the angels will come and save you, and he quotes Psalm 91. This is the enemy. The devil himself is quoting scripture to Jesus. That's pretty impressive, isn't it? The problem is, is he's taken the verse that he's quoting completely out of context to try to bait Jesus into responding and reacting. Because Psalm 91 has to do with God's protection, but not God's protection for your own stunts or thrills or own purpose, but for God's purpose for his people. The enemy knew that. Jesus knew that. That's why Jesus said no. Aren't you glad that Jesus did not believe somehow that because the enemy was using the scriptures that somehow it was right? He knew the truth, and he knew that the enemy was off just slightly trying to make him get, believe something that was not true. There was this distortion going on. So that happens for you and I. Here's a, here's a practical example. Anybody wear glasses like me? By the way, I hate glasses. That's why usually you do see me not wearing them, but I have to wear them up here because if I tried to read my Bible, I couldn't read it. I remember the first time it happened to me, I was trying to read the Bible, and it was a good thing it was a familiar passage because I faked it all the way through. That <laughs> happened about literally about eight or nine years ago. And I'm like, oh man, I gotta wear glasses. You know the worst thing for me is when you go to a restaurant, and I hate bringing my glasses everywhere. I just hate it. It's like, I don't want to have them. So I squint. Anybody like that? You squint really hard. And I, and I actually got like to cheat. I got a little magnifier on my iPhone. Anybody know that? But then I just look old, you know, and I'm squinting at the menu. Like I hate when you go into a restaurant, and it's really tiny print, and it's really dim lighting. You know what I'm talking about? But I'm like, I'm not wearing my glasses, so I'm just squinting, squinting. I can, like, I can do this. And I can't tell you how many times I've ordered things, and when it comes out, I'm like, that's not what I ordered. <laughs> but it is what I ordered. Why? Because I didn't read the fine print of what the ingredients were, because I couldn't read it. Because the harder I tried, the more distorted the words became, and so I made a decision based on what I thought was true, and it wasn't, because I couldn't see it clearly. The enemy banks on that in our life. If he can distort the truth slightly, then he can get us to make a decision based on what we think is true, and in reality, it's not even close to the truth. So he uses these two methods. So far, he used diversion, he uses distortion. And then there's the third thing that the enemy does that's present in this, and that is the evil looks like deception. Because in verse 10, when Paul goes off on and, and gives these, these strong words that he calls him a son of the devil, an enemy of righteousness, and he was full of what? All deceit and villainy. So he's saying, you are deceptive. You're trying to deceive the pro-council, and they're exposing him in this. But that's the way that evil comes. It comes in the form of deception to get us to believe something that is not true, but we think that it is true. Okay, I, growing up, I pretended to be a fisherman. I'm not a fisherman now. Anybody fish here? Anybody fishing? So fishing is based on one primary principle, deception, Right? you're trying to convince a fish that they're biting into a meal. But you know it's not a meal. Why? Because it's bait. It's a lure. It's it's a fake. That's why if you've ever fished before, when you put bait on a hook, you try to make sure that that bait covers the entire hook because you don't want the fish to know it's a hook, right? So you disguise it. So if you ever fish and you put a night crawler on a On a a hook, you make sure the night crawler covers the hook. And so whatever life is left in it, it wiggles around. and looks like it's alive. But the fish can't see the hook. If you use a lure, the lure is designed to cover up the hook with whatever it is. So the fish thinks, oh, that's a bug or it's another fish. It's time to eat. Bam. And then it's done, right? That's the whole concept. You know, the enemy does the same thing. He wants us to bite the bait. He makes something appear as though, yes, this is exactly what I'm looking for. This is what I want until I bite into it and then I'm hooked. I've recommended this book over and over again. Many of you read it. There's a book called The Bait of Satan by John Bevere. And it's a great book because he talks about the primary bait of Satan in the church is personal offense. We get offended with each other and the enemy does his work right in there because when we think, oh man, I'm so offended and we go tell somebody else and we start gossiping and we start spreading and we're like, yeah, yeah, and then not realizing we've just bit the bait and now the bitterness that we had in us now spreads to everybody else. That's the bait of Satan. That's the way he works in our life. That's the way that he's working in this passage, is he's working through this concept of deception. And so, knowing that, obviously, evil comes in their spiritual forces, but I think primarily the way that evil, evil comes into our lives is through subtle influence. And that's why we have to be aware of what the enemy's doing. We have to be aware of his schemes, and we have to be aware of the truth. Because the second side of this, and looking, continue looking at the passage, is how does truth overcome evil? If this is the way that evil primarily comes into our life, then how does truth overcome that? The first thing is this. Look at verses 4 and 9. It comes by God's Spirit. So important. Two times in this passage, verse 4 and verse 9. Verse 4 says, the beginning of the passage we read, it says, so being sent out by the Spirit, so Paul and Barnabas are sent, why? By the Holy Spirit's leading them. And then verse 9, it says of Paul, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. You can't miss those. Every time that, that phrase shows up, it's really important what happens afterward. So Paul is able to see the difference between truth and the lie, truth and evil. Why? Because he's not filled with his own wisdom. He's not filled with his own ability. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. One of the primary roles of the Spirit's work in our life is to bring us to a point of understanding truth. Jesus said this, John 13, 16. He says, When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. How many times in your life have you made a decision in your own humanity, in your own wisdom, and then looked back and thought, what in the world was I thinking, right? Because maybe you didn't pause and think, you know what, I need the wisdom of the Holy Spirit to help me to see clearly in this. Because many times there's decisions we make in our life that either are guided by our own flesh or our own desires, that we need a check, or we are literally making a decision in darkness because we don't know what to do. So we take a guess, or we, we try to think that we're smart enough. But when you're in darkness, you can't see what's in front of you. So you have no idea the kind of decision you're making until what? The Holy Spirit illuminates to you what the truth is in front of you. That's why it's so important to live a, what we call a Spirit-filled life, constantly dependent on the Spirit to guide us. So have you ever been in a place in total darkness where you can't see what's in front of you? That's a scary place to be especially when in the darkness you hear noises because you don't know what's in the noises. In fact, at our house, um, when you go out onto our back porch, we have a a light uh, on our patio, and you can see. But when you go around the side of the house where our trash cans are, it's dark. There's no light on that side of the house. And so one night, I was emptying the trash, and it was probably about 9.30 at night, so it was dark. There was no moon out, so it was pretty, pretty dark. And so I turned the corner from our patio to go to the trash can, and as I'm lifting up the lid, there's the, our, our neighbor's walls right there, just on the other side, there's a tree. And as I lifted up the lid, I could hear some stirring in the tree. I couldn't see anything. I just knew that there was something stirring. So the first thing I thought was, ah, oh, it's a squirrel, or it's a, or it's a, it's a cat, or whatever. And so, and so as I'm lifting the lid, all of a sudden, I look into this Darkness, I see nothing, and I see, see two little eyes pop out. I'm like, hmm. I'm like, that could be a cat, could be a squirrel. I usually don't see squirrels. And no joke, as I'm staring, there's more rustling around, and then two more eyes. And then two more eyes. And then two more. Before five sets of eyes are staring at me out of the darkness. You guys are all going, ah, uh, you don't know what's on the other end of those eyes. <laughs> and so I just kind of stood there like, I don't know what's on the other side of this fence. So I stood there long enough, and then suddenly some more stirring, and suddenly Mama Raccoon pops out right on top of the wall about three feet in front of me. I'm like, okay, we got a whole herd here, a whole pack. They're all right there. And then she starts running down the wall, and then all the babies fall behind. And I just stood there, and I watched, and I thought to myself, I'm glad I didn't react because nobody wants to mess with Mama Raccoon, right, when her babies are around. But I had no idea. I was just emptying the trash, but I couldn't see on the other side of the wall. How many times in our life do you and I hear something or in the darkness and we assume we know what's there and then we make a decision based on that only to find ourselves lost? But what if every single day and every single decision, every single moment when we feel that we're leaning towards a wrong decision, even though our hearts want to go there, we stop and we say, Holy Spirit, give me wisdom. Help me to see, open my eyes, illuminate. And That's what even with Pray See Me, that's why we're not praying here, we're praying out there. As we pray, we're saying, Holy Spirit, open my eyes to the things I don't see. What am I not seeing in my community? What am I not seeing at schools and for the city government and in my neighborhood that you want me to see? And then trust the Holy Spirit will speak clearly to each one of us. Then there's a second second point of when truth overcomes evil, and that it overcomes evil by God's power. So verse 11 says, and now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, is what Paul says to Elimus. And he says, you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time immediately, missed And darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. So again, context here. So now Sergius Paulus is watching this, and he's saying, Elias' magic is pretty impressive, but I haven't seen magic like this before. He's seeing a demonstration of God's power that is more powerful than anything he's seen before. And now, can you imagine? So here's this magician who's l- using sleight of hand and he's, he's manipulating and he's using some kind of spiritual powers. We know that. And then Paul just says, oh, by the way, you're going to go blind, dude. You're not going to see anything. Someone's going to have to lead you around. It's going to be darkness over you. And boom, in a moment, he can't see anymore. That's power. So it's a demonstration of God's power and so important because we have to realize that that many times what happens is God's power needs to be demonstrated in a way that it shows the fallacy of the world's power compared to it. Because sometimes we live in fear of the world, we live in fear of the power around us, not realizing that that's what it says in 1 John 4, 4, he who that lives in us, what, is greater than one who lives in the world. The power of God is greater than any worldly power. And that's what's happening in this passage. There's this, this confrontation. But what we have to understand is that we, the battle is not really between Paul and Elastimus. The, the battle is between the enemy and God. They're just in the middle of it. The spiritual forces that are going on around them is where the battle is really happening. And that's why when we pray against spiritual powers, we don't pray against people. We pray against powers. In fact, listen to what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. He says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present age or present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There are spiritual powers that are at work around us all the time. But you and I don't necessarily physically see them, but you know what we do see? We see their influence. So here's an example. So as we're walking through, pray, see me. So this week is schools and the next week's neighborhoods, and then the final, group, final thing is, is praying for people groups. So what is, the, what is the deception that we might find today when it comes to those three areas that has been influenced by spiritual forces that are against God's purpose in the lives of people? Well, let's look at schools. What, what do you think would be something that would happen in schools? I'll tell you. It's this deception that comes to students. Primarily it comes in the form of identity crisis. Our students are going through identity crisis. It comes when there's gender confusion. It comes when there's a lack of confidence in their own ability. It comes where they overcompensate with pride or they don't believe in themselves. And because of that, they have incredible anxiety. Our students go through that all. Where does that come from? That comes from the enemy that wants to confuse them and who they are. Because then they'll make wrong decisions. That's why we get mad at students for doing the wrong thing. And we'll talk more about this later. But so much of what sin happens in our lives and the lives of people around us comes down to the fact that we don't know who we are. And we're trying to figure it out. And it's an identity issue. How about in our neighborhoods? You know the deception in Simi Valley that's bought, kind of weaved its way into our neighborhoods? Is that it's fine to live in an isolated context. That's the deception of neighborhoods. I live in Simi Valley. I know. I know my neighborhood. That's why we have garage doors, right? That's why we have most of us have bigger backyards than we have front yards. Why? Because we live isolated. And that's an influence from the enemy that says, hey, you're better off if you're just by yourself. You don't need to rely on anybody else. You can just be separated. Then that works its way into the church. And we think, oh, I don't need anybody else's help. I can figure this Christian thing out on my own. And you can't. It's, it, it's, for most of us, and, and unless you've been living in your neighborhood for a long time, sometimes it's really hard to meet your neighbors. I've gotten to know most of my neighbors, but some people have moved in recently and I haven't had a chance to meet them. But you know what's funny? You know when you meet your neighbors is when something bad happens in your neighborhood. You know what I'm talking about? Something that's not supposed to happen. So yesterday, I was at home, I was doing some work in my house, and somebody's car alarm went off. And you know, that normally happens periodically, but it resets, and that usually happens after like a minute. What is going on for like five minutes? Just kept going. And so I'm like, ah, I should probably look out. And sure enough, one by one, here comes all of the neighbors. like, what? And, and it's so funny. None of us would come off of our front porch. We all kind of like, hey, how are you? We all threw up our hands. Finally, it stopped. And then we all go back into our house, right? Why? Because it's okay to live isolated. And that's just the deception we live in. You know, when it comes to people groups, we're going to pray for people groups. You know, the deception that the enemy has weaved into our country and the world is that you, it's better for you to live separated. That's the lie of the enemy. I know it's the lie of the enemy because it's the very opposite of what God desires. The beauty of the church, the beauty of the people of God is the diversity that comes together under the cross. That's, what, that's why Jesus said in Matthew 28, he said, what, go make disciples of all nations. And in Acts 1, 8, he said, what, you will be my witnesses, what, in Jerusalem, Judea, to the ends of the earth, people, and then at the, in, in the throne room in Revelation 7, people from every tongue, tribe, and nation will be gathered around the throne worshiping Jesus. All those have to do with what? diversity coming together in unity under Jesus. But the lie that we live with is, no, 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 no. You're different than me. You were born in a different country. You speak a different language. You have a different skin color. You eat different food. No, no, no. We're better to live segregated. Now, I'm not trying to make any political statement, but be careful that we don't mix our politics with kingdom principles because God has an outcome that looks different than the outcome that we might want because God loves people Period. And let that shape the way that we view things and the way that we view our politics. That's all I'm going to say. Okay? Moving on. If you guys got quiet, just like first service. <clears throat> the final thing is truth overcomes evil by God's word. So, verse 12, it says, And the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Earlier in verse 7, it says that Paul and Barnabas were teaching him the word of God so that, that he was getting access to truth. And that's how we know that truth overcomes evil is when we get access to the word of God. But I want you to understand the way that, that the proconsul gets access and his attention is gra- grabbed for to be taught the word of God is through the demonstration of God's power first. So why does, he, why does it say here that the teaching was he was astonished by the teaching? I'll tell you why he was astonished by the teaching. Because he just watched Paul make this guy go blind in front of his eyes. And he said, okay, wow, this is power that I've never seen. So what these guys, the teaching they have is astonishing because I've never seen this kind of power. So now he was willing to listen and eventually was willing to follow Jesus. Why? Because he saw a demonstration of God's power that opened up his eyes to God's word and God's truth. That is a powerful statement for us to understand the way that we engage the culture around us that lives, and we do have to live with this present evil that that we have to engage all the time. How do we combat that? Well, we think that the best way to go after evil is just to give people truth, and that's true, except many times people can't handle truth. That's why when Jesus came, what did Jesus always lead with with broken people? He led with love. He did. Because love, although we would not call it miraculous like this incurrence, is as miraculous as anything we can experience because it's something we don't know well, about in our culture. We don't experience it. But see, when, we, when we're confronted with deception or evil or even opposition from like in this situation, if we lead with love first, it's amazing how much softer people are to receive the truth. This is the way it happens in our culture, and this is important for us as the church because the perception of the culture right now is that all we care about is judging other people. What's wrong with them? That's what. That's leading with the truth. Are they sinners? Yeah, so are we. But if we lead with that, like, oh, by the way, let me just read your mail to you and tell you how, how wrong you are and sinfully you are, you're never gonna get anyone to listen to the truth because why? They, don't, they know that you don't love them. That's how we lead with truth. Here's, here's an example. A good friend of mine who pastors in a city, he, he has made it, uh, his, he's been in the city for a long time, and he has made it a goal that every time there's a new mayor that he builds a really good relationship with the mayor. Not, he's not maneuvering or trying to, it's nothing political. He just wants to care for the city, and he wants to know that the, the, the city, or especially the mayor to know that, that we are with you. So he's telling me the story a number of years ago in their city. They had, for, for the city he's in, it's a very conservative city, and a very liberal, anti-church um, mayor was elected. And the churches were all up in arms. Oh no, there goes the city. we got a liberal. Oh my gosh, somehow this, God can't save us from our own politics, right? That's what we think. Which, by the way, it doesn't matter who's in the White House or who's in power, because Jesus is in power, by the way. So he, he calls the mayor's office and said, hey, I'd love to get to know you. I'd love to ask you. I just want to come and talk to you about what's going on in the city and how we can help partner with you in, in making our city a better place. So, the assistant to the mayor says, yeah, the, the mayor, she can give you an hour. And so he schedule the time. He goes, great. Two days later, he gets a call from the mayor's assistant and says, yeah, you know, the mayor's got something that just came up, so she can give you 15 minutes. He's like, I'll take 15, because that's fine. So he shows up on that day for the appointment. He goes into her office, and he sits down. And this is all he did. He told me, he goes, I just took a pad of paper and a pen. That's all. He goes, I just want to listen to you. He said, I want you to tell me, what are the needs in our city? How can the church come alongside of you? How can we help support you? What are the challenges that our, face, our city is facing? I just want you to talk to me. I'll give you all 15 minutes. You talk to me. I want, I'm going to write it down because we want to help you. The mayor gets up from her desk, and she looks at him, and she says, you got an hour? And he goes, yeah. So she walks over, and she closes her office door. And then she sits down at her desk, and she goes, let me tell you the backstory of our meeting. She goes, remember when you called and you talked to my assistant? You remember how originally she said there would be an hour? And she, he goes, yeah. He goes, she goes, yeah, that, it was a plan for an hour, except just after you set that appointment, another pastor in town came to my office to meet with me, and he walked in with his Bible, and he set it on my desk, and he spent the next hour telling me how sinful I am, how wrong I am, and how, how poor of a mayor I'm going to be unless I turn and repent. She said, when you called, I thought, well, here we go again. I'm going to get the same thing. So that's why I told my assistant, I'll give him 15 minutes, and then I'm out. But she said, since you care about our city, and you actually want to listen, I'll give you a full hour. And so she began to explain to him some of the things that were going on in the city, and she said, you know, I'll just tell you, she goes, one of my biggest pet thieves, she goes, since I've been in office, she goes, our... our our public works, and the ones that kind of do maintenance in the city, she goes, they're just really struggling, and I'm trying to help them, but I give them certain things that I see that need to be addressed in the city, and it just doesn't get taken care of, he said, she said, for example, there's, there's a couple alleys in this part of town near downtown that haven't been cleaned up forever, and there's over, there's this growth, and it, and there's trash, and it just needs to be cleaned up, and I keep telling them, and every time I drive by it, it's not done, so he's writing, my friend's writing down, he goes, okay, okay, And so they finish the meeting, and immediately he comes out of the meeting. He gets on the phone with a bunch of guys from his church. A couple days later, they go over to that that alley, and they clean a couple alleys spotless, cut it back, cleaned up the trash. And a week later, he calls the mayor and says, hey, did you see the alley? She goes, yeah. He goes, done. And that began an eight-year partnership with that mayor. As long as she was in office, she knew that that church in town had her back that they would commit to do whatever the city needed. And because of that, this one church has influenced the city more than any church I've ever seen influence the city. Why? Because a a pastor sat down and led with what? Love. That mayor is now no longer in office, and she lives out of state, and she still calls him when she has somebody in the city that goes through crisis. She calls him first. Why? Because he led with love. And you know how many times he's been able to share the truth With the mayor and everybody in the city why because he led with love first what if we did that we would overcome the evil of our culture if we led with love so when we're out in our neighborhoods when we're schools when we see things that that are struggle for us because we think oh that's evil yeah it is but that same evil that that person's participating is the same evil that's in our our flesh and they need jesus much as you and how did we come to know jesus it's the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. That's how we come to Christ. It's the same thing is true for us. I want to close with this because I think this is important. In fact, I'm going to ask the, the worship team if they would come and join me because we're going to sing one last song because I, I felt there's a really important application for for what we are looking at today that that really gets specific to what I mentioned a little bit earlier about students in our schools. And that is that At a personal level, when we struggle with figuring out the difference between truth and evil, most of the time it comes down to an issue that is more inside us than it is outside of us. And it has to do with us understanding who we are. The primary lie of the enemy is to tell you, you are more than you are, and you are less than you are. Because when you believe you're more than you are, you live in pride. You're arrogant. You don't listen. You don't learn. When you live less than you are, you live in anxiety and fear and insecurity. And in both extremes, you can never be who God's called you to be because you're living for yourself in one and you're living in fear in the other and you can never be who God's called you to be. And that's why so much of of the wrong decisions we make and the struggles that we have with evil in our life have to do with we make decisions based on a false identity trying to be something that we're not or being fearful to do anything because we're afraid that we don't match up. And that's why your identity and who you are is probably the most important thing you can understand about who you are in Jesus. Because so many times you and I don't realize God has determined, not you, God has determined because of his love for us that before the foundation of the world, before creation was ever started, God put in motion this plan, knowing that we would live on the earth at this time so that Jesus would come into the world, die for our sins, so that we could be reconciled back to God, so that we could have one primary identity. You know what it is? Child of God. That's it. You're like, well, that's big deal. Big deal. You mean the God of the universe has chosen me to be a part of his family, even though I mess up, I sin, I'm a horrible person, all the things you could say about yourself. And the God of the universe says, Yes, I chose you. You didn't choose me. I chose you to be in my family. And that means no matter what you go through, no matter what success you experience, no matter what failure you experience, there's always one thing that will never, ever, ever change. You belong to God, you're a child of God. And that means every decision you make in life is based on that reality. And that means when you are faced with a decision, even when it comes down to your career, you don't make a decision based on your competence in your field. You make a decision based on the fact that you are secure in who God created you to be. And therefore, you don't need that job to prove yourself, but you will take that job if that's what God wants you to do. Or you won't shy away from opportunities because you live in fear and insecurity because you don't think you can cut it. If you know who you are, you know that God works in you and therefore can accomplish anything he calls you to. So you don't live in pride and you don't live in fear. You live as a child of God. I'm hammering on this one because I see this so many times. If you only knew who you were, you would be able to accomplish so much for what God wants to do in your life. One of the greatest stories ever told And one of the most familiar stories ever told in the Bible is David and Goliath. And we always make this about some skill or some ability or some talent that somehow wins the battle. And it has nothing to do with that. The only reason that David defeats Goliath is because David knew who he was. If you read that story, he shows up on the front lines and he's the only one that is offended by goliath because he says how dare he say this about the armies of the living god he's looking around saying guys don't you know who you are and then when saul comes along goes oh well here we got honestly i think this is what saul's thinking we got a sucker he'll go out and fight here's the lamb to the slaughter i'm going to give him my armor and david puts on saul's armor and he fumbles around and he says to saul i can't wear this and if you read the passage the next thing he says he gives saul his resume he goes i can't wear this but i've killed a lion I've killed a bear. I've defended my sheep. I've protected them. Why? Because I've been a shepherd my whole life. And so when David entered out on the battlefield against Goliath, he didn't go on as a soldier. What did he do? He went as a shepherd. That's why we know. What, he took his staff and he took his slingshot. That's all he had against this guy who was, who knows how big he really was, eight, ten feet, 500 pounds, could slaughter David in a heartbeat. And David takes one stone and puts it in the right spot and Goliath falls. Why? Because David was the only one in Israel that who knew who he was. We're a room full of Davids. And God's just waiting for us to realize. And here's the thing. It doesn't matter what you say about yourself. It doesn't matter what other people say about you. It only matters what God says, and he's already made that clear. He loves you. And that doesn't change. And if we live in that reality every single day of our lives, it'll change the way we live our life. We won't have to worry about evil. We won't have to worry about darkness. We won't have to worry about those things. Why? Because I know who I am. So I'm not distorted. I'm not deceived. I'm not diverted. I know the truth because the truth lives in me because Jesus has saved me and I belong to God. I'm going to pray in a moment. Then we're going to sing a song we sang earlier. I am who you say I am. And I want this song to be a declaration. I want you to sing it out. Even if you don't believe it, make it a declaration so as you sing it, maybe you'll start to believe what God already says is true about your life. Because leaving today, we need to walk out of here with a confidence, not in our own ability, a confidence in God's ability to establish our identity. We belong to Him. We're His sons, we're His daughters. Lord Jesus, we thank You for Your sacrifice. That through Your sacrifice, we are adopted into the family of God, and we are unconditionally loved by the Father. And so, Lord, today I pray, where the enemy has brought the lie The lie that says you're worthless, the lie that says you don't add up, the lie that says that you can't do this, or even the lie that says, oh, you're better than everybody else. All the lies that we believe about ourselves, I pray that right now you would quiet the voices of lies. You would remove the distractions of our lives. And Lord, in this moment, you would, through the song that we sing, would you declare to us and declare over us, we are your sons, we are your daughters. You have made that declaration, you have purchased us, and therefore, Lord, we are sufficient in you in all that we need for this life to know the difference between truth and evil jesus would you come and help us to fully live into the identity that you've given us in your name